Hi, I'm Charlie, and I host a true crime podcast called Crime Lines. Over at Crime Lines, I walk you through a detailed timeline of a case while still keeping things conversational. I like to take complicated cases, some you've heard of, many you haven't, and to make them easy to follow. Some of the most convoluted cases I've covered include Lori Vallow and the disappearances of her children, a recent two-part series on the alleged victims of Robert Durst, and the crimes of Franklin Delano Floyd. Every month, I feature an episode about a missing or murdered Indigenous woman or girl, including cases like Ashlyn Mike and the establishment of the Amber Alert in Indian Country Act. Search for Crime Lines on Spotify, Apple, Himalaya, or your favorite podcast app. Then hit that subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. enjoyed visiting the up north cabin of my aunt's family. And when I say aunt's family, I'm referring to the woman my uncle was married to. Her dad was this brilliant, successful doctor, and he had a bunch of young children in the 50s. So he and his wife bought a beautiful piece of property on a lake in Benzie County, just a few miles from Traverse City. And that was where they built a sprawling summer home. And when I would visit their place, this was back when you had to time your travel up north to miss the raising of the Zilwaukee Bridge. Well, when we would go up there, my aunt would pack a cooler with town club soda and bologna sandwiches on Roman meal bread, and we'd pile into her car and head north on I-75 to the lake. That ritual activity that Michiganders refer to as, quote, going up north. And I would guess when I was a kid, there were probably half a dozen weekends spent over the course of two or three summers. My aunt and uncle, they didn't marry till I was in elementary school. And then when I hit middle and high school, I was far too cool to go up north for the weekend with my aunt. But looking back across the years, I view these trips with nostalgia, a simpler time, a wholesome way to spend the weekend. Swimming in the lake, driving to Frankfurt to explore a secret fishing spot, and playing with the big dog who lived with her parents at the cabin. It wasn't until I began researching this episode that I heard of Lower Herring Lake. As the crow flies, Lower Herring is about 10 miles southwest of our family cabin, and about 5 miles south of the previously mentioned community of Frankfurt. Lower Herring is a 450-acre lake, well-stocked with fish like brown trout, brook trout, and rainbow trout. Around the lake are family cabins, private cottages, and the occasional resort, like the Watervale Resort. Once upon a time, Watervale was a small and bustling community, with a lumber mill, post office, cabins for the loggers, and a boarding house. But once the forests were cleared of valuable timber, Watervale was abandoned and in the early part of the 20th century, a Chicago-area doctor purchased the property and turned it into a vacation retreat for his family. Watervale offered plenty of space for his many siblings and their own families. He kept the name of the community, Watervale. 
Today, in 2020, descendants of that Chicago doctor still own the property, and guests can stay in the hotel, which was once a boarding house, or they can rent one of the cabins. Their website shows the many buildings with their charming and colorful Victorian-era paint and trim. And honestly, it looks like a lovely place to get away from the hustle and bustle of the big city. While you're there, you can enjoy the water, the views, and the small-town feel that Benzie County offers. You're also close enough to Traverse City that you can access their airport if you have the means to fly in. Watervale is also convenient to Traverse City's restaurants, breweries, and shops. And listeners, if Benzie County sounds familiar to you, we've covered cases from this area before, particularly the still-unresolved 1973 murder of 15-year-old Terry Sutter from episode 115. Today, we're going back to Benzie County to revisit the mysterious death of Huntington Woods native Florence Unger. In October 2003, Florence, a wife and mother of two young boys, was a woman with her life in flux. Her husband, Mark, well, she'd grown up around him, the two of them living in Huntington Woods, a bedroom community just north of Detroit. The pair were reintroduced in 1988 when Flo was 24 and Mark was nearly 30. And when they saw each other again, sparks flew. The couple married in February of 1990, and, like their parents had years earlier, they settled in Huntington Woods. During their marriage, they would welcome two sons. Mark had a job as a radio sportscaster for the Detroit station WJZZ, which was on the Detroit dial at 105.9. WJZZ was known for jazz until it sold in 1996. Mark loved his job, and he loved being a local celebrity. But Flo was worried. Mark wasn't earning enough to support their young family with his income from the radio station. While both Flo and Mark had attended the University of Michigan and both had artistic leanings, Mark wanted to work on air, Sports were his first love, and his dream job was as a sportscaster. And Florence, she was a photographer. Well, a photographer turned stay-at-home mom to their young family. But the reality was that to support their boys, Mark needed a better income. So he reluctantly left his position at the radio station for a job as a mortgage banker. And while he wasn't happy with the change, the family was doing much better when Mark took a better-paying job. By 2003, about 13 years into the marriage, Florence wasn't happy. And it's possible that the couple simply grew apart. Mark was six years older than his wife, so while he was 43, she was 37. Their children weren't babies anymore either. In 2003, the boys were 10 and 7 years old. Both children off at school each day while Flo worked on her art and tended to the family home. What we know for certain is that Florence was fed up with her husband's addiction issues. In 1998, Mark suffered a back injury and subsequently developed an addiction to Vicodin. An addiction to gambling followed soon after. In 2002, after almost five years of struggle, Mark spent six months in a rehab facility working on his addictions. When he came home, he was clean, but it didn't matter to Florence. After five years of struggle, trying to manage Mark's issues and parent their young boys, she was done. She wanted out of the marriage. 
This means that in the summer of 2003, there was a lot of tension in the Unger household. And this tension came to a head in August when Florence filed for divorce, asking that the couple's assets be frozen. So while Mark and Flo still shared a home, she had checked out of the marriage. And while the divorce processed, she focused on being a good mother to their boys and looking at her life after the divorce. Flo had started seeing someone new. And whether this was a casual fling, or if she was starting something more serious in anticipation of being a single woman, well, that depends on who you ask. No matter what was going on in the marriage, Mark and Flo were dedicated to their boys. Nothing would change the fact that their children came first. So in October of 2003, when Mark suggested a family weekend to the Watervale Resort, a place where they vacationed as a family previously, Flo was reluctant to go, but Mark reminded her that the kids loved it up there, and the two of them could hash out some of the details of the divorce, including a custody arrangement, during the trip. Knowing that their boys would enjoy the getaway, a trip that was likely the last hurrah of the Unger family, Flo agreed to go, and the family of four made the 250-mile drive to Arcadia in Benzie County for what would be the last trip of Florence Unger's life. So come with me to an October weekend in 2003, when 37-year-old Florence Unger sets out with her sons and her soon-to-be ex-husband for a getaway that will tragically be her last. When I first started looking at this case, and I saw that a married couple spent a late October evening sitting outside next to a boathouse discussing the end of their marriage, my first thought was, why? Late October nights by the lake sound like one thing to me. Well, sounds like two things. They sound damp and they sound cold. Give me a bonfire and a view and I'm in, but to sit outside in the dark with a spouse that you no longer love and care for, frankly, it sounds like punishment. And I wonder if it felt like that to Flo, having to sit with Mark in the darkness by the lake, in the dark on a night where temperatures are dipping into the 30s, This wasn't some glorious warm fall evening. It was downright cold out there. And Flo wasn't just leaving Mark because she'd grown bored of the marriage or because she'd found someone new. It was Mark's addiction issues that spurred her to take charge of her life. She wanted new and different things. She wanted a life that did not include Mark Unger. Now, Florence had always stayed in good shape maintaining her figure, even after two kids and looking at 40 just a couple years down the road. And maybe she was thinking of her life as a single woman when she signed on with a personal trainer at the Beverly Hills Health Club at the start of 2003. And listeners, if you're not familiar with the area, Beverly Hills is a small community near Southfield and 14 Mile Roads. The Beverly Hills Health Club is not related to the Beverly Hills of California fame. In addition to focusing on her health and fitness, Flo put her photography on hold while Mark battled addiction. She took a job as a mortgage loan officer to keep her family afloat while he spent months in rehab. And Florence stayed in shape and she worked to support her family. Her husband was struggling. He'd found his way to both alcohol and pills and gambling, and despite her support, he didn't seem to be getting any better. Mark Unger said that back issues led to pain, and the pain is what led him to the pills. Then there was the gambling. He was known to enjoy blackjack, and Detroit had its share of easily accessible casinos to choose from. 
Mark will later deny any alcoholism, pointing to the struggles his own father faced as a drinker, and said that he, Mark, would never do that, not when he knew how bad it was. Mark did his stint in rehab, and he had a token for a year of sobriety, but he knew he hadn't been at his best. He was aware that he'd failed the woman he loved and that he'd failed his family. In October of 2003, Mark wanted one last family trip, one last visit to Watervale. And thinking of her two boys, boys that always enjoyed time up north, Florence Stern Unger agreed to the trip. On what would be the last night of her life, Saturday, October 24th, 2003, Florence joined her husband and children for dinner at Dingy's, a local joint in Arcadia. Mark will later tell authorities that they chose the restaurant because their boys enjoyed the burgers served there. Afterward, the family returned to the resort, getting the boys settled in at the cottage. Late in the evening, Florence and Mark were seen together on the deck attached to a neighboring resort's boathouse. It would have been their first time alone together on the trip, and they had a lot to talk about. It was about 9 p.m. when Florence was seen by a fisherman who was landing his boat. The two spoke briefly. Florence mentioned that she would hate to be on the lake at that hour because she was so afraid of the dark. This would be the last time anyone other than Mark Unger spoke to Florence. Mark would later claim that he left the deck around 9, 9.15 p.m. at Florence's request. Their cottage was about a hundred yards away from the deck. He said she asked him to check on the boys, so Mark went inside, tucked the children into bed, and came back out to an empty deck. He assumed that Florence had gone to visit the Duncans, the couple who owned the resort, so he went back to their cottage, put on a movie, and fell asleep. Mark woke in the morning and realized that Florence wasn't there. He called the Duncans to tell them that Florence was missing. Lynn and Maggie Duncan were immediately alarmed. The Duncans knew the Ungers quite well because the Ungers had vacationed at the resort several times, and the Duncans found it out of character for Florence to stay out all night. The pair immediately began searching for her, and it didn't take them long to find Florence face down at the edge of the lake with a wound to her head and blood clouding the water around her. Maggie immediately called 911 to report a suicide or maybe a drowning. While his wife made the call, Lynn Duncan went to find Mark. When he did, he told him, quote, You're not going to like it. She's, she's in the water. Lynn would later recount Mark becoming hysterical, screaming as he took off running to the water, stopping exactly where Florence's body was. Lynn would later say that he found it suspicious because her body was impossible to see from where they were. It was blocked by trees and bushes. Mark ran to Florence's body, picked her up, and then set her back down when he saw the blood. Troy Packard was the first officer on scene, and the first thing he noticed was a large bloodstain on the concrete below the deck, which was strange because Florence was found in the water. The bloodstain indicated that she fell onto and laid for a period of time on the concrete. Officer Packard interviewed Mark but found him to be evasive. Mark regularly gave him answers of, quote, I don't know, and, quote, I just want to leave. In fact, Mark really did want to leave. He had the SUV packed and ready to go within two hours of Florence's body being found. When the Benzie County Sheriff arrived, it became clear to him upon investigation that this was not a suicide. 
The large blood stain on the concrete indicated where Florence landed after falling 12 feet from the deck. Upon observation of the deck, there were two broken railing supports. There was also no blood trail from the blood stain to the water, indicating that Florence was placed in Lower Herring Lake. Police obtained a warrant so they could search the Unger's vehicle and the inside of the cottage they'd stayed in. One of the things they found during their search of the vehicle was a pair of men's shoes. On one of the shoes, there appeared to be a smear of white paint. The body of Florence Unger was transported downstate for a forensic exam. Her autopsy was performed by Kent County Medical Examiner Dr. Stephen Cole. Dr. Cole determined that Florence's death was a homicide, and her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. However, a second medical examiner, Dr. L.J. Dragovic, the Oakland County Chief Medical Examiner, he stated that after reading Florence's autopsy report that he believed she died due to drowning, meaning she was still alive when she was placed in the water with a severe head injury. The funeral service for Florence was held on Tuesday, October 28th at the Ira Kaufman Chapel in Southfield, and hundreds of people were in attendance. One of the mourners was her personal trainer from the Beverly Hills Athletic Club. He told reporters from the Detroit Free Press that days earlier, when he trained her the Friday morning of the trip, just hours before the family left for Watervale, Florence told him that she did not want to go. She didn't want to go with Mark and the kids. She didn't want to spend the weekend with her husband. In court filings two days after Florence's body was recovered, Mark Unger was named a suspect in her murder. The children were removed from his care and placed in the custody of Florence's parents, Harold and Claire Stern. Now, the prosecution argued that Mark was an unfit parent due to his history of drug abuse as well as being a suspect in the murder of his wife, the children's mother. This would mark the beginning of a long and tedious custody battle that would put forward two principles of law, the idea of a person being innocent until proven guilty, and the duty to protect children at all costs. While not much was happening on the criminal side of this case, the newspapers were filled with custody issues, tons of back and forth. Her parents, Mark, his parents, everybody had an opinion. It was super ugly. We're just going to gloss over that, but know that the custody issues surrounding this case were very complicated. Meanwhile, Mark's attorneys are arguing that since he hasn't been charged with a crime, let alone convicted of one, it was a severe overreach of the state to take his children away. Oakland County Assistant Prosecutor Robert Zivian argued, however, that even though Unger had not been charged, there was a case being built against him. They posited that Mark Unger was too dangerous for his children to be left with him. Zivian also argued that his past issues with drugs were enough to deem him an unfit parent. Ultimately, Oakland County won their argument, and the children remained with their maternal grandparents. Mark did get some visitation time, about seven hours a week, but it never satisfied him. He missed his boys. And while he fought for custody of his children, police are building a case against him for murder. Mark hired an expensive defense attorney, even though he hadn't worked since coming home from rehab. Instead, he was relying on his disability insurance to stay afloat. And listeners, I'm going to guess that his parents helped pay for his legal representation. Investigators dug deeper into Mark and Florence's divorce, thinking it would be a good place to find a motive. And according to court documents, it was Florence who wanted the divorce, not Mark. 
You see, Mark was convinced that the two could reconcile, thus the vacation to Lower Herring Lake. Mark deceived his wife. The trip wasn't planned so the two of them could hash out details of the divorce. He was hoping that a visit to a favorite spot, some place that they'd made good memories, that this would lead to a reconciliation. Police got even more insight into the state of the divorce when they looked at documents from a divorce hearing that took place on October 21, 2003, a mere four days before Florence's death. At the hearing, Florence requested full custody of their sons and asked for the release of all the records of Mark's gambling and drug addiction. These records would paint Mark in the worst light. If a judge saw these things about Mark, it seemed unlikely that he could win custody of his children in the divorce. Another interesting note from the divorce hearing is that Mark's best friend, Glenn Stark, he testified that he and Florence were having an affair. Glenn would later tell police that Mark already knew about the affair, but it wasn't until after the divorce hearing that he began acting in a distant and hostile way toward Florence. When police asked Florence's friends about the hearing, they learned that Florence told them it was the worst week of her life. They also learned that Florence was complaining about Mark's increasingly erratic behavior. Ronald Loeb, a neighbor, he spoke to Florence just two days before the trip. He came upon a tearful Florence who told him that she was afraid to go on the Watervale trip with her husband and children. And listeners, as bad as things are looking for Mark, there are still people on his side. When his mother was interviewed, she stood by her child and vehemently stated that Mark killing Florence was, quote, out of the realm of possibility. And Mark's defense of himself never wavered. He always stated that he loved his wife and would never harm her. In May 2004, seven months after Florence's death, Mark Unger was charged with first-degree murder in the 85th District Court in Menzie County. He was soon freed on $100,000 bond. And one of the first things that the prosecution did was to seek to amend the custody deal Mark had with his in-laws. Prosecutors did not think Mark should have any access to his boys, and one of the reasons for this is that the boys could be called to testify in the murder trial. Prosecutors also sought to bar Mark from any contact with witnesses, as well as make him wear an ankle monitoring device so they would know what he was up to. Preliminary hearings held in 2005 in district court heard both Dr. Cole and his assertion that Florence died of a traumatic brain injury when she hit the concrete floor underneath the railing, and Dr. Dragovic's findings that Florence drowned when she was put in the water after the fall. The court ruled that Dr. Dragovic's testimony would be inadmissible. The judge determined that Dr. Dragovic's conclusions were not based on commonly accepted scientific methods. The court also ruled that the highest charge Mark could face was second-degree murder. And this is significant because in Michigan, if you're found guilty of first-degree murder, you automatically get a life sentence. Whereas if you're found guilty of second-degree murder, the sentence goes up to life imprisonment but still offers a possibility of parole. In 2006, unhappy with the ruling of the district court, the state's attorney general's office requested a hearing to reverse that decision. The case was taken to the Benzie County Circuit Court, where Judge James Batzer ruled that Dr. Dragovic's testimony would be admissible. He reversed the lower court's decision. This also allowed prosecutors to bring first-degree murder charges against Mark. Judge James Batzer also revoked Mark's bond and sent him back to jail until the trial. 
At the beginning of the trial, which was held in Benzie County, the jury was able to visit the site of Florence's death. They walked around both the cottage and the deck where she had either fallen from or was pushed. This was to give them a reference point for the upcoming testimony in the trial. Now, they have very little forensic evidence. Remember, she spent the night in the water. She was in the lake. But Oakland County Prosecutor Donna Pendergast, who was working the case for the state, she felt that the circumstantial evidence was strong enough for a conviction. The prosecution's theory of what happened the night of October 24th was simple. They believed that Mark broke the deck railing himself, either by pushing Florence into the railing or kicking the railing. Florence fell off the deck and landed on the concrete below, causing severe injuries, including a traumatic brain injury and a broken pelvis. And then Mark left her there. He went inside the cottage, he tucked the children into bed. After an hour, he returned. He picked his wife up and put her face down in the water where she drowned. Pendergast enforced her theory by focusing on the fact that Florence was truly afraid of the dark. She would not have stayed alone on that deck at night. She also called in other experts, including a doctor who testified that after performing tests on Florence's brain tissue, he determined that her specific brain injury could only have appeared after being alive on the cement with that injury for an hour or an hour and a half. Then the prosecution called a paint expert to testify to the paint found on Mark's shoe. Keith Lamont testified that the paint on the shoe, quote, was consistent in color and elemental composition to the paint on the railing of the deck. Prosecutors concluded that this information suggests that Mark either kicked the railing or kicked his wife and inadvertently also kicked the railing, which led to her fall. The final piece of evidence offered by the prosecution was a video recreation of Mark's route down to the lake after he was told by Lynn Duncan that Florence was in the water. The video proved that Florence's body could not be seen where the two men stood. This implies that Mark already knew where she was, and that's why he was able to run directly to her body when he was told that his wife had drowned. After the prosecution rested, the first thing defense attorney Robert Harrison did was ask for the charges to be dismissed. He said, hey, the prosecution hasn't met their burden of proof. And the judge went, yeah, I'm not granting you a dismissal. So Robert Harrison began calling his own witnesses. Harrison argued that this was all a tragic accident, that Florence Unger tumbled from a deck that was in poor condition, a deck that was not up to code. She fell several feet onto the concrete while Mark was inside with the children. Her body then rolled or bounced into the lake. John Zarzicki, an engineer, he testified for the defense saying that the railing was so rotted that anyone could have fallen through it. Not only were the railings in poor condition, the rails did not meet building code height. They were only 26.5 inches high, while Michigan code requires 36 inches in height. The defense also had their own medical examiner, and this medical examiner testified that there wasn't enough information to determine whether Florence was pushed or if she fell from the deck. Lastly, the defense argued that while the police had considered suicide a possibility, they never pursued the idea that Florence's death may have been an accident, and therefore they spent no time collecting evidence to support this theory. On June 21, 2006, after a nine-week trial, Mark Unger was convicted of first-degree premeditated murder by a jury of six men and six women. He was automatically sentenced to life without possibility of parole. Prior to sentencing, 
the defense asked the judge to overturn the jury's decision due to a lack of evidence, and once again, the judge denied the request. In December of 2006, Mark's parental rights were voluntarily terminated after a brief hearing. This avoided a jury trial. The children were to remain in the custody of Florence's parents. And listeners, her children appear to be doing great. The boys are grown up now. They're adults. And it seems like they have good lives. I think that Florence would be pretty happy about that. In the 14 years since his trial, Mark has filed many appeals citing issues such as prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective counsel, and a lack of a fair trial. All of his appeals have been denied, with the most recent denial being in February of 2019. Mark Unger is currently serving his life sentence in the Chippewa Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This week's episode was written by Brittany Martinez and researched by myself and Ashley Conan. Audio editing provided by Gray Multimedia. You can get early, ad-free access to episodes of Already Gone via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash alreadygone to learn more. And listeners, it's mid-year, July 15th. If you haven't had a chance to leave a review for Already Gone, it would mean a lot to me if you could do that. Reviews help other listeners find the show and the stories we share here. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.